Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. The cross of Jesus Christ, our salvation, in the forefront of our minds as we think about that song. Lord, let it be such a refuge for us. Restore unto us, Lord, if we have lost in any way the significance and joy attached to the singular price paid for our salvation. Open our hearts to comprehend the beauty of Yourself revealed through Your Holy Word today. Equip our minds to understand the beauty, the contours, the connections, the genius of who You are revealed in Holy Scripture. Equip us, Lord Jesus, for the work that You prepared each of Your believers for. Bringing the knowledge of Your truth beyond these walls to a world that is desperately lost. So blind they cannot see that they are lost. Help us, Lord Jesus, to demonstrate the kingdom of God through hearts equipped, the message of its power, and lips fitted with the words of its truth, and hearts overflowing with the joy of our salvation. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity, and we acknowledge that it is the Spirit's work alone, granting grace to proclaim the word and to receive it. And so we ask that you would do so. Open up our hearts to hear and to understand your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a glorious opportunity we have today to turn to the book of Nahum and to launch another series of messages covering this minor prophet. So turn to the book of Nahum with me if you would this morning. And we will cover today, Nahum 1, verses 1 through 8, will be our primary text. The title of this morning's message is Supreme Jealousy. Supreme Jealousy. We find God introduced by Nahum himself, the prophet, as a jealous God indeed. It's helpful that we have covered several texts that deal with this concept of God's character. And so we'll be able to have some cross-references from your memory from, say, Deuteronomy 4 and Hebrews 12 today. We'll touch upon those. These are extra helpful, especially considering that I do not think that the idea of God being a jealous God, let alone avenging, wrathful, taking out that wrath on his adversaries and his enemies is a very popular notion at all in the modern concept, the modern quote-unquote Christian concept of who God is. So as far as that goes, the word of God through the prophet Nahum provides a corrective for us today. Thus, the aim of this morning's message is to amplify the beauty of salvation indeed, considering the alternative. May the beauty of salvation be amplified in our hearts today, considering the alternative. Nahum proclaims the alternative to salvation and the judgment that the city of Nineveh deserved in his oracle and vision. Would you stand with me if you're able, with your Bible open, to Nahum 1 and let us read these first uh, eight verses. Follow me as I proclaim the holy word of God. Here we have verse 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is jealous and is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before Him. The hills melt. The earth, the earth heaves before Him, the world and all who dwell in it. Verse 6, Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. This is the word of God. You may be seated. 
supreme jealousy. The book of Nahum, a little historical background for you to set the context and table for us today to help us understand these words. The book of Nahum is, you could say, the sequel to Jonah in many ways. We've gone through the book of Jonah, of course, in recent weeks, and now we turn to the sequel, Nahum. The calling of this prophet, Nahum, was to proclaim the imminent judgment that Nineveh this time would not escape. And because of their knowledge of the truth given by Jonah, thus doubly deserved. Nineveh had lost the faith. They had turned back to wickedness. The paganism had rushed into the vacuum of their leaving the knowledge of the truth. And thus, the proclamation over them through the servant Nahum was judgment indeed. This time, there would be no recourse as history unfolds. God would utterly destroy them. Incidentally, the revival that was sparked by Jonah's preaching in this great city likely lasted no more than a generation. A generation in Scripture is about 30 years, and if you add up some of the time frame references and the rest of Scripture, that's probably about how long the people took heed to the Word and walked in repentance. Jonah prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II, so that would put the course or the... uh, Contemporary dates of his ministry, 782 through 753 B.C., according to 2 Kings 14, 23 through 28. Now in history, we see the notorious warmonger, a king of Nineveh and Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, assuming the throne of Assyria in 745 B.C. So let's say Jonah began preaching his oracle, his original word, to Nineveh in 782 And then we have this horrific king arising to power in 745. And you see, that doesn't leave much time there for the effect of this revival uh, standing among them. It seems to have had a very short shelf life indeed. This king was a true contrast to the king who had led a citywide repentance under the word of God delivered through Jonah. In fact, this king would uh, influence in his foreign policy campaigns that would eventually invade the northern kingdom of Israel and take many captive. This happened in 722 B.C. That is, Israel itself came under the oppressive regime of Assyria and was overrun and conquered by the nation Nineveh was the capital of and represented Assyria. Nahum's ministry begins as God's patience with Nineveh therefore wanes. Around a century after Nineveh's apostasy, Nineveh leaving its confessed faith in Yahweh. Nineveh ultimately, utterly falls to the fulfillment of Nineveh's words 150 years or so after it was ransacked, or uh, 150 years or so after Nahum's proclamation when it was ransacked in 612 B.C. by the Medes and Babylonians. Assyria had been used as an instrument of chastisement For the unfaithful people of God, but now she will answer for her wickedness. And the Lord will use the eventual oppressors of the southern kingdom of Judah to accomplish this, namely Babylon, yet they too will one day meet a jealous God in their own demise. Therefore, the book of Nahum reminds us even today that the boundaries of God's patience are encountered at the borders of His people. That could be a theme statement for the book. The boundaries of God's patience are established along the borders of His covenant or His people. Those who cross the line to attack and to oppose Him by opposing His people try the patience of the Lord and ultimately earn for themselves judgment. So we best take refuge in Him because that is the line of demarcation. You're either in the refuge, the covenant refuge of God, or you are awaiting His soon coming judgment by opposing Him. It's kind of the picture here. So in summary, Jonah preaches, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. The king and all the people repent. About 30 years later, they forget the one true God and presumably turn back to the worship of their warmongering idols. A king arises very shortly to capitalize on these sensibilities and he leads a campaign eventually against the people of God. 
Years go by, a century or so, and God raises up another prophet. A hundred years, brothers and sisters, where this inexcusable violence against the Lord and his people has festered in the city of Nineveh, and finally God brings his prophet. And then 150 years thereabouts to turn to him. Our God is patient. Our God is patient. And after these 250, almost 300 years grand total, finally, the patience of the Lord has met the end, and now he will demonstrate his glory in bringing justice upon the heads of the Ninevites. And so in 612, every word of Nahum came absolutely true. Here's a heading for our text today. Nahum introduces the reckoning Lord by three aspects, by three things. First, his character traits. Secondly, his power displays. And thirdly, covenant distinctions. Nahum introduces the Lord to Nineveh yet again. He does so in these opening eight verses, which is often called the introductory hymn or the opening hymn of Nahum through God's character traits, his power displays, displays of power and glory, and thirdly, through covenant distinctions. So let's look at these. The first three verses, considering them again in our text, we have verse 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Let's pause there. We see some, perhaps to our modern eyes, surprising character traits emphasized at the very beginning of Nahum's work, Nahum's oracle and vision. In fact, these words are introduced by this phrase, this, phrase, this preface, an oracle concerning Nineveh. An oracle is typically, it's a word, it's a message, it's a body of information delivered to a people whose fate, whose future hinges on that word. Therefore, oracle is often tied into the notion, to the idea of judgment. If you do not listen to this body, to this of, of information, to this message and declaration, there will be consequences. It's a final authoritative word from the Lord of the universe, from the King of Kings, that commands repentance or destruction for any power, authority, or person who has risen up above the knowledge and authority and declared revelation of God Almighty. This is the idea, the, con the context of the authority of the words that follow. Secondly, we find that this is a vision also. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Nahum is a historical figure. He comes from a particular place. We see that with reference to his city of origin or dwelling Elkosh. But we also find that God has spoken to him. He's visited him with a vision, with a particular way, revealing his truth to this prophet so that when this prophet goes to this city, he brings an authoritative word that is given to him by the sovereign inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we begin to see the sobriety, the foundation of seriousness laid for what will follow. And what follows is serious indeed. We find the character traits that are emphasized in verse 2 and following, those that correspond to the judgments of God. Let us consider first the righteous jealousy of the Lord. The Lord is jealous in verse 2 and avenging. And an avenging God is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. I want to recall to your attention Hebrews chapter 12 because as God's providence would have it, we have a couple of cross-references we've already covered in recent weeks that also emphasize this idea of the jealousy of the Lord. We debunked, according to Scripture recently, this notion that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different than the God of the New. That the God of the Old is more described in terms that are scary, frightful, judgmental, and so on. But in Christ, we see a whole different side of the divine. Compassionate, loving, and so on. Well, this is a false dichotomy. And the Old Testament and New Testament testify to the same. Our scriptures say, in fact, that the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
And if you do not realize what it means that God is vengeful and wrathful, you do not truly know our Lord. Consequently, if you only understand God as an avenger on His enemies and don't realize His mercy, His justice, or His mercy, His grace, His steadfast love, his, uh, the abundance of these things through His covenant, then also you have a distorted, a short-sighted, a myopic view. The Bible throughout, from old to new, portrays in multifaceted beauty, beautiful revelation, the fullness of God's character. After all, in Hebrews 12, as we have read, verse 28, our author in the New Testament proclaims that we should be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God, he says, acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Reverence, awe, and gratefulness inspired by this phrase, verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. This picture of God, this metaphor of His character traits, a consuming fire, is a biblical way to illustrate His jealousy. How do we know this? We know this from Deuteronomy 4. And again, this is just to remind you of these cross-references, the continuity in the biblical text, that reveal our Lord as jealous. Moses instructs the people who are tempted to forget the knowledge of God, just like the Ninevites did when they left in their rearview mirror the teaching of Jonah, yet 40 days in Nineveh will be destroyed, did not realize that they received great mercy from God upon their repentance, began to despise that knowledge and grace and turned to their idols. Much in the same situation or in a similar context, Moses addressed the people of God when he said in Deuteronomy 4.23, Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which He made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. And what does he say in verse 24? For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Our God is a consuming fire, he is a jealous God indeed. And to the degree that we fail to realize that, we are on dangerous ground indeed. Where, when are we or any other generation most susceptible to idolatry, to waywardness, and to indulging our old man and sin? It is, in fact, when we forget to realize, when we forget the truth that God is a jealous God, that He is a consuming fire, that His mercy and grace comes at the high cost of His Son, in fact, His only Son, perfect and sinless, absorbing the wrath that His enemies and His adversaries otherwise deserved. Here we see a picture in Nahum, in Deuteronomy, in Hebrews, of the Gospel, in its full-orbed revelation, it includes the character traits of God as righteous in His jealousy. And then we move on in His vengeance and also in His wrath. This central attribute, jealousy, is expounded in consequences. That is, the holiness of God, the sacredness, the singularity, the beauty, the worshipful or the uh, worship-worthy truth of who God is comes with consequences because God is in a class by himself because he is other than above and over and superior and he is primary and to be extolled and glorified therefore he is jealous of anything that would presume to stand beside him or stand instead of him and therefore because of this jealousy of our holy God he is an avenging God. He's, an event, he's avenging on those like Lucifer who would seek to be exalted to his status of holiness, his status of glory. If there are any who try to climb the ladder of glory to be as God, they will find themselves dashed to pieces if they do not repent. They will find the door of Eden closing on them and they will look back to that realm of fellowship guarded with not a welcome sign, but a flaming sword of God's justice. If you presume to be like God, and if you believe the lie of Satan, 
that you are somehow on par with him, independent of him, have a mind and goal and will and purpose and destiny, all of your own, a sinful, prideful, individualistic, modern Western man, you will find yourselves one day facing a jealous, avenging, and wrathful God. The Lord is jealous. He is an avenging God. We see here in the text a three times reference to vengeance. And this is the way in, po- in Scripture's poetry of emphasizing a particular point. Never forget that the Lord will avenge His enemies. Don't think, because you've gone two and a half centuries, Nineveh, that there will not be an accounting for your actions. The Lord is a jealous God and an avenging God. Continues, the Lord is avenging and wrathful. And finally, the Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries. Three times the Lord is revealed as vengeful in this, in this uh, context. This three times reference corresponds in our mind as we recall Isaiah 6, where three times the seraphim cry, Holy, holy, holy. It is because the Lord is holy that there are consequences for the denial of His holiness. This is the message to the pagan people. And thirdly, He is wrathful. This wrath is a kind of righteous anger that has a certain threshold, and when it's reached, the justice of God is manifest in the destruction of His enemies. This is pictured in the New Testament as well. Again, to emphasize, this is not an idea unique to a concept of God that was underdeveloped in the Old Testament or a notion of God that was somehow in some weird dispensational sense different than He is in the future. When we look in the book of Revelation, we see the vengeance of God in the flaming sword proceeding from the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ, demonstrated in His victorious warfare campaign in the slaughter of all His enemies. This happens at the end of history in ways that are increased in magnitude that past judgments are only a snippet, a picture, a glimpse of. But at the end of time, when God's patience has finally met its limitation. And his patience waits with all he has allowed to be born from sinful Adam and Eve and populate this earth. There will eventually come a day when the door of opportunity to the ark of his salvation is finally closed. And the floodwaters, as it were, rise. And all who are outside of the covenant are finally drowned, only this time in the lake of fire. This is the picture of scripture. How dare we soft pedal it? We do it at the expense of the sleepless, or or of the sleepiness of the world around. What do you think our culture needs today? Do they need the message that whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you've done, whatever your attitude, God would love to cuddle you right now because Jesus is so much nicer than anyone you've ever met? I don't think so. Not when we live like Nineveh. When we live like Nineveh, we don't deserve a message of consolation. Neither will it do us any good. We need what we said last week, the bitter medicine tastes bitter at first, but eventually, uh, but eventually heals the soul that God is righteous, jealous, avenging, and wrathful. And then we need to discover how that wrath and vengeance may be averted, that we might be saved. That, of course, is answered in the gospel. So we've seen that God is righteous. In His jealousy, we've seen the poetic emphasis. We see parallels here in verses 1 through 3. And we also can understand these references as uh, highlighting God's justice. You recall in Jonah, we've referenced this verse a number of times, how Jonah is actually disturbed because God has revealed himself in chapter 4, verse 2, as gracious, as merciful, as abounding in steadfast love, and as slow to anger, if I haven't mentioned that one already, and relenting from disaster. Here, I'll read it for you verbatim. Jonah 4, verse 2, After God has saved the city upon their repentance, he prays to the Lord and says, O Lord, is not not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. And listen to his confession. He knew something about the Lord. Jonah says, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Those five references to the mercies of God, to His kindness, 
are taken in balance or with the corresponding truth of Nahum, a message to the same city that reveals God also as jealous, vengeful, wrathful, great in his power, and not clearing the guilty. Remember, both is the message. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. The Lord keeps wrath for his enemies. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. I believe we could take verse 3 as a theme verse of perhaps this whole book. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. There is further revelation to this city. And given their abandoning of the truth, they needed to know that God is not only slow to anger, He's not always only slow to anger, He is also great in power. And there are specific terms of covenant that must be met in order for the Lord's kindness to abide. God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster for those and only those who find Him as their stronghold, and ultimately take refuge in him. Verse 7 of Nahum 1, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Those who take refuge in him know him as merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. But those who do not take refuge in him, they find that he is great in power, jealous, Avenging, wrathful, and powerful, never clearing the guilty. Nahum introduces the reckoning Lord, Yahweh in His justice, by emphasizing these character traits. And it is a slap in the face indeed. Hopefully it will be for those whose hearts are trained to hear the truth, cold water in the face to call them to repentance. And I submit to you, the door of repentance was opened at this time. Though God would utterly destroy Nineveh, like I mentioned, it was likely a century and a half or more more before that door finally closed and annihilation came to the city. These words were there for the understanding and for the fear of the people to turn and to remember what Jonah had once proclaimed. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Let's move to major category this morning, number two, displays of power. Nahum introduces the reckoning Lord by his character traits and also by displays of power. In the notes in my Bible, I like how it it phrases this. I'll read this to you. It says, The godly Israelite recognized the Lord's work in nature. The godly Israelite would recognize the Lord's work in nature. But nature is not confused with God or worshipped as God. It is the theater of His revelation. What a great phrase. Nature as the theater of God's revelation. That's exactly right. Nature itself is like a stage that features the power of God. And we see these displays of power referenced in the poetry here. Let us consider them in verse 3, second half through verse 6. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Here Nahum employs images from nature as a theater to display the power of God. In family devotions at our house, we play the stop game, we call it. And so what I'll do with the kiddos is I'll say, every time you hear something that has to do with the nature, with the world, say stop. And if you did that, I think you would stop 12 times when you're reading these passages, by my count anyway. Let's notice them. Let's consider the first four. His way is in the whirlwind. Stop. Right there. In the whirlwind, the Lord is showing His power. Think of the whirlwinds that strike our coast yearly. 
We have hurricanes that beat mercilessly upon cities. I remember this year watching the news and there was a construction crane and I felt like the picture was fitting. This construction crane that symbolizes the ambition of man to build skyscrapers into the sky. And here's one in Miami, you know, that I was watching on the news. And the whirlwind comes in in the form of a hurricane. And you may know this, but those construction cranes are built on a swivel. So they're built to turn into the wind to sustain high gale force winds. But in this case, it was an exception. The engineers who spend millions of dollars and apply all of their uh, expertise and education to build this crane to sustain the whirlwinds of the Lord failed in that effort. And that thing was folded in half, came down, crashed out windows, flattened a car, so on and so forth, proving that nature is a theater for the power of our Lord. It's ironic to me that in our land, which is so like Nineveh in so many ways, nevertheless, when, nevertheless, when whirlwind season comes around, fear and panic are broadcast across the airwaves. Board up your homes, get extra water, get out of town, and freeways are lined with cars who would otherwise not budge from their luxurious homes for miles and miles trying to get three states away from the whirlwind of our Lord. Nature itself is a theater of the power of God. These first four references, whirlwind, storm, clouds, and sea, are chosen purposefully. They illustrate that God commands the otherwise untamable. In spite of our technology and our pride and our ambition, as a people in this highly developed world society now, we fail to control the weather. We are at the mercy of these things. Yet there is one who controls every molecule whipping around the eye of that storm that strikes Miami. And that is the Lord who is speaking in the book of Nahum. That is the Lord who has created this world in the first place and has recorded his deeds from Genesis to Revelation for us to see and to fear. He is the Lord who commands the otherwise untamable. In ancient thought, there were categories like these metaphysical or these divine categories that the people had in their mind that often characterize their God. They, in the figment of their imagination, they're longing for a God, imagining a God who could control the chaos, or sometimes they worshiped chaos itself because they saw that despite their best efforts, they were at the absolute mercy of these kinds of forces. And so over and above chaos, Nahum introduces the Lord of the storm, the clouds, the sea, and the whirlwind. We recall in our, to our attention evidence of this from the first page of Scripture. The Bible is very clear who the Lord is. He is the one who not only controls these elements to which Nahum refers, but made them in the first place. Let us remember the account of God's creative power and His command over the untamable from the very beginning. Genesis 1.6, the Lord said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And the Lord made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse and the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. The Lord said in verse 9, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. Only our God can do this. We saw this on the news as well. Another reference to the hurricane season in Florida. Do you remember when the water was all sucked out of the bay on the east side of the state and the whirlwind of the Lord had chased it around to the west side and people were bewildered walking around on dry in this dry bay. You know, I imagine a boot, an anchor, a fishing pole. As you're looking at an area that has been covered by water until the Lord gathered together into one place through his whirlwind, this heap of water on the other side of the state and dry land appeared out into the expanse of the harbor. <clears throat> a picture reminding us that God did this very thing when he made the earth. God caused this dry land to appear and it was so and God called the dry land earth. The waters were gathered together. He called the seas and God saw that it was good. Do not forget the creator of this world who separated the waters from the dry land, 
who gathered them in two heaps so that his people could cross the Red Sea, who parted Jordan with the touch of his finger when the symbol of his presence stepped into the waters. Do not forget our Lord, who controlled the seas in the New Testament and spoke, peace be still, and at his command, immediately the storm obeyed. The storm, the whirlwind, the clouds, the sea obeyed its master. These are pictures of God commanding the untamable that remind us of his powerful displays. Do not forget either in Genesis 8, 13 through 14, how God caused dry land to appear when the flood waters of his judgment receded. No doubt all these pictures are in view in the whole of Scripture to emphasize what Nahum is declaring. Nature itself, in these examples, our own experience, creation, and the recorded word is a theater for His glory. Secondly, under power displays, we see four more categories of nature. We can refer to these or reference these as rivers, Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon. And in these, Nahum emphasizes the power of God to choke out life. That is to say, God is the God of fertility. Another important concept to the ancients. In verse 4, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. The next phrase, he dries up all the rivers. Rivers represented life. In fact, Nineveh itself was built on the confluence of rivers. I can't exactly remember Tigris or something like that. And Nineveh survived and thrived on the bounty that this river supplied. And you can see even on the ancient maps that they likely diverted the water in and the palaces and the place, the temples were actually situated with reference to that river because they recognized that this was the source of their prosperity in life. If the river would dry up, no more Nineveh. The Lord can dry up a river. And he did effectively that when he destroyed this city. He did effectively that when he turned the river to blood in the plagues of Egypt. The Egyptians worshipped the river there. Why? Again, same idea. It was a source of life. This was the stream, the artery that, act, that, that fed the bounty of the nation. The agriculture, the significance, the provision, the prosperity, the influence of the society, of the nation of Egypt thrived at the mercy of the river Nile. But that which represented life was turned in one instant into the representation of death as billions and trillions, who knows, of gallons of blood flowed through the land. And the people, what were they doing? Do you remember? They were scouring along the bank, digging with any implement, even their hands, trying to find water. And that desperation showed how dependent they were on the God of nature, who by one word of His power can turn a source of life into a picture of death as the river flowed with blood. God choked out the life of that river to demonstrate through the theater of nature that Egypt existed at his mercy. They owed none of their power, authority, influence, and future to the greatness represented by their pyramids, to the importance of the dynasty of Pharaoh, or to the riches collected in their palaces and temples. Other references, Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon. Psalm 22 talks about the bulls of Bashan are particularly fearsome. Why? Because the area was like the Swiss Alps, the Grass grew in abundance and all of the beasts had their fill. They lacked for no source of nutrients. So the cattle of Bashan were intimidating indeed because of the luscious, life-giving resources all around them. Carmel, same idea. Lebanon, you recall that was the place where cedars were harvested and other trees. Why? Because it was the most pristine growing conditions for superior lumber that was actually used in the temple of the Lord. These were places that flourished with life, river, Bashan, Carmel, Lebanon. Yet the Lord has the power to choke them out. In one word, Carmel can wither. Bashan can be destroyed. Lebanon can experience virtual nuclear winter. And these places become absolutely devastated desert wilderness wastelands. The third display of power using the illustration of nature, perhaps we could call collapsing the immovable. We've seen that the Lord commands the untamable. He's Lord over chaos. He chokes out life. 
and causes it to thrive. Conversely, thus he is Lord over fertility. Finally, he is Lord over security. High places, hills, rocks, these represent uh, fixed points and foundations. And notice in the text how these are also at the mercy of our Lord. He says in verse 5, In fact, the mountains quake before him, and the hills themselves melt. The earth heaves before them, before him. Mountains, hills, and earth. The world and all who dwell therein it dwell in it, therefore, are at the mercy of this power who can unseat the foundations of a powerful redoubt, refuge, fortress, by one word, cause it to come tumbling down. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces before him. There was a city named Jericho, you recall, that had declared their independence and sovereignty. Their, they had built an impregnable wall. They had thought, here, we will never be conquered. We are invincible. And they stood as a monument to the security that man seeks in rocks, in foundations, in mountains, in hills. But one day, a disheveled band of wilderness wanderers came into view of that great city. No doubt, the guards on the parapets laughed and jeered and threw stones and insults their way. But the Lord gave a simple command, and at the word of the Lord, His children obeyed. They walked around that city. They walked around it again. The seventh day, seven times. And what happened to those rocks? There was a giant rumbling sound. The earth quaked and heaved. The mountain of their security was thrown over, the hills melted as it were, and the rocks were broken into pieces. And that great monument to the security of man was turned to rubble, the city was overthrown, and the place burned, was utterly devastated and destroyed. And the only thing remaining was the house of one woman who had trusted in the God of nature. She had heard the testimony of the Lord's exploits parting the Red Sea protecting his people through the wilderness wanderings, providing bread in the desert. And she knew that Jericho was at the mercy of the God of hills, mountains, rocks, and the earth itself. She believed. She took refuge not in her walls, not in her city. She, in fact, violated the law of that land to spare the spies. She took refuge and her stronghold was the Lord, and she was saved. But no one else, no one else survived the beating. When the Lord collapsed the immovable, Korah was swallowed. We recounted this of late. The rebellion against Moses was met with a judgment where the earth heaved, it split open, and the jealousy of our God was illustrated dramatically when His vengeance His wrath taken out on His adversaries and enemies when they were swallowed alive to Sheol. Jericho tumbles. Elijah is stunned when God shakes the mountain, yet he ends up speaking to him in a still small voice. Dagon, the false god, crashes to so much rubble before the Ark of the Covenant, proving to us the Lord collapses the otherwise seemingly immovable. He is the God of security. And thus, Nahum introduces the reckoning Lord by his character traits, character traits and by his displays of power. And finally this morning, let us consider covenant distinctions. It makes all the difference if you're in covenant with this God or not. Verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue His enemies into darkness. Notice first of all, as against the popular heresies of our day, that Nahum unapologetically and without qualification simply says in the midst of this judgment oracle, the Lord is good. You see, we are under the misguided notion often in our day that a jealous, vengeful, wrathful, one a God who destroys his adversaries, how can, that, how can he be good? We are misguided in our values, in our idea of what a good God is. God is good because... He preserves His righteousness and holiness 
by taking out his anger on his enemies and his adversaries if they do not trust him as their refuge and stronghold. The Lord is good because of his judgments, and the Lord is good because of his mercies. He is a stronghold, in fact, in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Brothers and sisters, this week I heard an interview with a man who just wrote a book. I'll say his name. His name is Greg Boyd. He's an influential pastor in this state. The title of his book is The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. I haven't read the book, but I've listened to the interview where he lays out his concept for this book. And it seems to me patently obvious that he suffers from this idea. How could God be ethical? How could he be good when we see these proclamations of his judgments so sweeping and so intense in the Old Testament? He can't reconcile it in his mind. Greg Boyd has a problem with a God who would command his people to take out a whole people group right down to the children and the animals if God so chooses that in his time now, He will bring a reckoning for the wages of sin. What are the wages of sin? They are death. Every human being born in sin deserves those wages. God in His grace and mercy has spared so many from what we deserve. All of us deserve. Why would we ever question His goodness knowing when we see that His patience actually has limits? Who are you, the, uh, Paul says in Romans 9, to answer to God? Why have you made me this way? Will the potter, will the clay say to the potter, this doesn't add up, you've done a bad job? Who do you think you are to say such a thing? This goes for a modern theologian. This goes for the city of Nineveh. Bow before the Lord who has revealed himself in these terms. Do not argue or try to recreate him in your own image. Do not in your trepidation, in your misguided affections, seek for another truth. There's only one way, truth and life. Christ our Lord revealed in all of His Word. His goodness and wrath are a reality in the Scriptures. And though they are a stark contrast to modern sensibilities, they are perfectly reconciled in the nature, character, and yes, the redemptive work of God Himself. We ask ourselves, speaking of redemption, if God will by no means clear the guilty, how can we be saved? What a great question. Asked another way, how can we take refuge in the Lord if we see that He, hit, that he is finally jealous and serious about His righteousness? It's so interesting to me, we won't cover these specifically, but on your own time, if you would like to do a fruitful study, Mark four or uh, note Mark four thirty nine, note also Mark eleven twenty through twenty five, and Matthew twenty seven fifty one through fifty four. Those are in your notes if you have a copy. What you see in those accounts is Jesus rebuking the sea, commanding it, "Peace be still," demonstrating that he had the power to command the untamable. That first category of power display. Secondly, you see Christ in Mark 11, 20-25, cursing the fig tree, demonstrating that he had power over fertility as it were, that he had the ability in his authority and actions to choke out life or to permit it to live. We also see this in his miracles, of course. But the final reference, there are actually rocks splitting and the earth heaving, demonstrating The Lord is powerful over these elements, but this happened at his death in Matthew 27, 51 through 54. And thus we see in the work of Christ demonstrated in this act that God will by no means clear the guilty. The rocks cried out. They shook. There was an earthquake. Stones were split when Christ died, but it signified something, that the justice and wrath of God was being poured out on His Son. And in that moment, it pleased the Lord to crush Him because He was taking vengeance on His adversaries and keeping wrath for His enemies in His Son. Brothers and sisters, that is the only way that God can judge the guilty justified. 
God does not clear the guilty. That means God does not proclaim that we are justified without sufficient payment. But on that cross of Calvary, when stones were split on that day and the sun was darkened, justice and wrath was poured out on our Lord, demonstrating that in Him is our stronghold in the day of trouble. In Christ is our refuge. In Him is our ark. And we are saved in Christ from the overflowing flood. We go through the door, Jesus, and we do not have to fear the fate of Nineveh if we find our security, our hope, our redemption, our salvation in Christ our Lord. This is the message that finally ties the threads of redemption together from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between, including Jonah and Nahum. Dwell on these things this day and see if it doesn't amplify the beauty of your salvation, especially as you consider the alternative. Let us close in prayer. Oh Lord, we are so thankful that you have recorded for us in such exhaustive detail the glories of your redemption all through the pages of Scripture. As we have uh, tried to identify a few beautiful threads this day, touching upon these texts, I pray that you would take these threads and weave them deeply within our soul so that we respond accordingly when your word is proclaimed with appropriate reverence and fear considering the alternative and then overflowing gratitude and awe with uh, our hearts stirred to worship when we realize that the mercy, grace, steadfast love, slowness to anger and relenting from disaster is available in Jesus Christ our Lord. Finally, we pray for this land. Lord, we can relate to the circumstances of ancient Nineveh as our nation has, has experienced a measure of truth and a great light has been poured out in the history of our land, a light that is largely forsaken in so many sectors of our pagan and wayward and apostate culture. You have been kind and patient with America, yet we know from your scriptures your patience has limits. May we turn from our sins in this land and turn to you. May this land hear the message of Nineveh proclaimed through Nahum, through Jonah, through those who are called to rightly divide your scriptures this day, and may you move <clears throat> this people to confess their sins, repent, and turn. Lord, in some small way, if it would please you to commission us to bring that message, may we be found faithful when the opportunity is presented and all that you might be glorified. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.